Welcome to the Fort Lauderdale Primary Purpose Big Book Study Group's Thursday Night Alcoholics and God Speaker Step Series. Let's have our joke. Hi, Chris. Walks into a pub. There we go. A termite walks into a pub and asks, is the bartender here? Okay, thank you, Chris. I'm a recovered alcoholic. My name is Marianne. Thanks for joining us tonight. In in a minute, we're going to start our two-minute meditation. So please take a moment to get situated. Please turn off all devices that make noise that might or will distract others. Take this time to get connected to God, let the craziness of the day drift away, and ask God to help you stay focused on the step study tonight. Is everybody ready? If so, let's start the meditation.
Those of you who know the fog light prayer, um, if you would join me, that would be great. We don't have it up here, do we, tonight? So follow along if you don't know it. God, let your love shine through me like a fog light so those who are lost, sick, and dying can find your love through me. Thank you. There is a solution from the big book, page 17. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. And I have asked Jared to read Appendix 2, Spiritual Experience. We read this because the main purpose of the 12 steps is to have a spiritual experience. So it's kind of important to know what one is. Hey, Jaren. Please refrain from disturbing others by talking or constantly getting up and sitting back down. This is a tech-free meeting, so set your phones to airplane mode or just turn off. So I have the honor and privilege of getting to chair this meeting during my favorite speaker series who happens to be my husband and my shoulder-to-shoulder and a man that um, chop wood, chops wood and carries water but loves God with his whole heart, soul, mind, and strength and I just and carries a message of depth and weight. So you guys are in for a treat if you've never heard him. This is week seven for Peter. Come on up, darling.
Is it still on? Yes, sir. I'm from Brooklyn. If you wear a wire, they blow your car up. My name is Peter, recovered alcoholic. Thank you. I'm grateful to be alive and sober and part of a sacred place called Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, <clears throat> I've been visiting our uh, state conference, which is right down the road from here. I can't believe we have one of these in our own backyard. And it's pretty, uh, pretty cool. Biggest hotel down here. A whole bunch of people rolling around. People saying hello to me, and I'm carrying on conversations with them. I have no clue who they are. And uh, through all of the excitement and some wonderful speakers, I couldn't wait to get here tonight. And I'm really under the weather. I, I called, Marion called me earlier. I says, I, I don't know if I'm going to make it. Um, but I got here because uh, I must tell you, and this is my heartfelt uh, thank you to the trusted servants here. We're usually downstairs tonight. We're up here. But there's something about walking into Alcoholics and God uh, that my soul knows it's, it's supposed to be here. There's something. Uh, certain groups have this and certain groups don't. Uh, this group happens to be one of them for me and, and for my wife where uh, we just show up and, and um, we just, there's something here uh, uh, that you can't, you got to feel it, you got to experience it. And so that's what got me here, coming down here, whether I was speaking or not, I just love walking into this place. It commands respect, it has integrity, it looks fabulous. And uh, there's a message of depth and weight here. I'm just grateful to, to I would make coffee tonight if you were to ask me. I, I just love being here. So I thank you for the honor to share with you. Uh, June 23rd, 1988 is when a loving God separated me from alcohol. I'm very grateful for this gift of sobriety. Um, and the longer I'm sober, you know, I'm learning more and more over the last, I would say, five years, uh, maybe even less than that. The importance of relationships, that life in general, especially on this spiritual walk, this walk of the soul, how important relationships are, that I need to clean up old scrapes and get stuff out of the way that's in the way. And even though the relationships may not mend, I know I've done my part, I've cleaned off my side of the street. And so I try to do things like that. And um, I've done it. I reached out to people. Uh, I've extended my hand. I've offered olive branches over the years because I'm really, when I'm with Marion, uh, I, I let her know uh, once again where I am with her and how I feel about her. My brothers, my dad, and my close friends, uh, even my sponsor, because there's no guarantee I'm going to see them in an hour from now or the next day. And I can take that for granted or they're going to see me. And it might be the last time we meet. And it's really important to do that. But I can't do that if I'm having problems with God. Because if I'm having problems with God, I'm definitely having problems with me. And if I'm having problems with me, I'm definitely going to have problems with you. That's just the way it works. I'm not okay with you because I'm not okay with me. I'm not okay with me because I'm not okay with him. And so what I get to do on this journey is as I'm removing stuff, God's removing stuff and flushing the things that are in the way, out of the way, I suddenly find myself, you know, bursting upon this power, standing in God's light. And the more traction I get, the more spiritual muscles I get, the more dependent I am upon God, the more right I am with God. I suddenly find myself accepting me for who and what I am, what's and all, and I'm able to embrace you. I'm able to have clear communication with you. And also get to a place if you want nothing to do with me, that's cool. That's really cool. 
your ship will go this way and mine will go that way, but I'm not going to send a torpedo at you. I don't know what you're going to do, but uh, that's just the way it is for me. And on most days, I'm traveling a lot lighter. I'm really, I don't get attached anymore. I, well, I used to, especially early sobriety. I was so worried about what every, everyone thought of me, how I appeared to them. And so I would try to sound the part and dress the part because I was so enmeshed in if I got an attaboy or they like me, I'm okay. And that's just the way it is at the beginning. But I, I'm in a place, it's been this way, and I don't know what tomorrow is going to bring, where uh, because of this power called God, when I'm truly dependent upon him, and I have doubts and I have skepticism, the strongest faith has doubt. I, I'm in a place where I care. If someone has harsh words, I, I, I don't care. Put me in the first column because in the second column. I, I, you know, I don't care. And the people who uh, are with me will walk with me and I will walk with them. And that's freedom that the big book talks about, entering the world of the spirit. It's a really narrow gate to which I'm about to walk through the eye of a needle. And I can't fit resentments in there. I can't fit money in there either. I can't take, I take, can't take worldly things through there. I need to go in there clean, raw like I'm about to go out and make amends. I need to go out with no attachments to stuff. And, and with six and seven is so fabulous. It's two paragraphs, a paragraph for six and a paragraph for seven. Yet if we remove those two paragraphs, the rest of the program absolutely collapses to its knees. It wouldn't work. There's no way I can go out and make amends loaded with character defects. There's no way I can enter the world of the spirit, dragging all the manifestations of self into that. That stuff had to get removed. And I just, before I forget, uh, I've read this a million times, and I remember not too long ago, I'm reading through it again, and it just, you know, things appear in our literature that have always been there and suddenly they show up and you say, I never saw this before. But Bill writes something in step seven. It's almost prophetic because when I read it, it's about, it was happening then, but it's certainly happening now. And what he writes in step seven is this. With great intelligence, men of science have been forcing nature to disclose their secrets. The immense resources now being harnessed promise such a quantity of material blessings that many have come to believe that a man-made millennium lies just ahead. Poverty will disappear and there will be such an abundance that everybody can have all the security and personal satisfactions they desire. The theory seems to be that once everybody's primary instincts are satisfied, there won't be much left to quarrel about. For the most part, our society, and I, I don't want to get into outside issues, has become what this basketball coach Pat Riley would talk about is the disease of me. It's about me. It's always about me. And our, our communities have allowed the disease of me to flourish, and we see in Alcoholics Anonymous, little by slowly. It's total self-centered. I don't really care about your feelings. You need to be worried about my feelings. And everything you say and do might offend me, but I don't care if I offend you. The world would then turn happy and be free to concentrate on culture and character. 
solely by their own intelligence and labor, men will have shaped their own destiny. And if we think about what's going on then and what's happening now, we're doing a pretty lousy job in trying to achieve this because it's all, all of it, what he's referring to is me making things the way I want them, the way I think they're supposed to be. And it's going to be good for you too. And it's just crumbling. It's just falling apart. But something happens when a drunk like me tries that and it completely collapses and then further I collapse and then I have one place to go back to and that's God and say, I've made a mess again because humility I can't acquire on my own. I can't make myself humble. Humility is forged on an anvil of pain and suffering and when I see the whole thing crumbling and I go to God and say, I made a mess, can you help me? Can you fix this? There's the humility. That I, I don't know what to do. All I know is I've made a mess of it. And the arrogance of me as an alcoholic still thinks, even with that, that I know what's best for me. And further humility is when I get deep down in my soul, I don't know what's best for me. I don't know what I need anymore. I need you to say, go that way and I'm going to follow. Even with reluctance. He says, certainly no alcoholic and surely no member of AA wants to deprecate material achievement. If you make money, go make money. If you have a house on A1A and an in-ground pool, God bless you. But that shouldn't be my primary purpose. Money, property, and prestige. Nor do we enter into debate with the many who still so passionately cling to the belief that to satisfy our basic natural desires is the main object of life. But we are sure that no class of people in the world ever made a worse mess of trying to live by this formula than alcoholics. For thousands of years, we have been demanding more than our share of security, prestige, romance, that we could fill in the blank. Give me more booze, more drugs. Just give me more. I have a passionate night with my loved one, and tomorrow I need to find somebody else because I'm going to practice infidelity now because last night wasn't enough. The boss gives me a raise and a big pat on the back, and that money gets old in a week, and I'm looking for a new job. I get a new car. I'm really happy with it. Has a new car smell. My neighbors come out and say, it's a beautiful car. Congratulations. I get in. I feel like I'm a big shot, and a week later... I need a bigger car, I need a nicer car, I should have that car. I, uh, my old company gave me a bonus, and the bonus was a brand new Lexus. Brand new uh, E350 or something, like, was beautiful. I, couldn't, I didn't want to touch the steering wheel, I was so nervous driving it. I never drove a car like that. I'm driving like 10 miles an hour on Federal Highway, like, you know, <laughs> don't get dust on it, don't breathe on it. I couldn't believe it was my car. I get up to A1A in Palmetto, and there's a light there, and I have to make a left to get to my apartment. And I'm sitting, I can't believe this, oh my God, the sun is setting, it's just, it's just perfect. And I hear a rumbling in the right lane right next to me. And I look over, and it's one of these Lamborghini cars. It was a blue one. One of these bright, like, neon blue Lamborghinis. And what's sitting in there is like an 18-year-old knucklehead who's just probably in a sober house right now. (laughs) Right? And I look at him, and he looks at me. He's young enough to be my son. And in this instant, this Lexus, I said, I can't believe I'm driving this car. First time in my life, I can make a phone call from the car. I thought I was James Bond. 
I call, Mary and I call my dad. You don't believe where I'm calling from. You see, everybody's got phones in their car now. Pete, take it easy. And uh, <laughs> I couldn't believe. And suddenly, my Lexus was like, I'm an old man driving a Lexus. Old men drive Lexus. Old retired men with big fat bellies and no hair drive these cars. You should have that car, and your company had to give you this car because there's no way you could afford this car. It was a bonus, and you're an idiot. And I make the left turn, and for about a quarter of a mile, it took me to, <clears throat> excuse me, to snap out of that. <coughs> Pardon me. Always striving, never arriving. Always striving and never arriving. <clears throat> and more is not enough. Just more is not enough. He goes on to say, when we seem to be succeeding, we drank to still greater dreams. Never happy. Never was there enough of what we thought we wanted. And it goes on and on and on. And we talked about the seven deadly sins last week. Because they are deadly. They're the things that block me from God. And think about the seven deadly sins. And this is from experience and what I've learned. They will block me from God. They will get me. Alcohol is a symptom of my problem. It's not really, it's a problem. It's not the problem. The problem is spiritual disconnection with God. And when I'm in that place, a lot of stuff is going on. A lot of the spiritual malady. It's not only selfish and self-centered and self-seeking. It's self. And all the manifestations of self. And it's this thinking mind. This mind, not the brain, the mind. That controls my life. I see through it. I hear through it. I speak through it. I feel through it. I behave through it. And what's up in there are these seven deadly sins. We call them character defects. But what's driving character defects are these seven deadly sins. And what's driving that is fear and self-reliance. And they're not going anywhere. They don't care we're sober a while. They're always there and always need to be, put, be made dormant. They're not curable with knowing the big book and having the best home group and having a good sponsor and knowing all the mechanics. That does nothing to defects. Those things should take me to this power called God that will arrest those defects a day at a time. What's really scary about defects is I don't even know they're working on me until I go, I'm in a lot of trouble. But they're working. They're always, and it's, it's, Bill talks about in the seven steps, that uh, the self-righteous anger. I justify my anger. Don't you be angry at me. I can be angry at you because you did this to me. I'm looking through that stuff. My vision has been tainted with pride and anger and envy and sloth and so on. And yet I don't want to do anything about it. Then I pick up a drink. I say, I should have done something about it. I learned my lesson only to go right back again. See, the process I've learned and experienced of recovery is not linear, but transformational. We got cats running around AA with 90 days that I want to get close to. And we got people in AA with 20 years I want to stay away from. It's transformational, not linear. I know we put a lot of emphasis on time. And when you knew, it's really important. I got 90 days. Man, I remember that. I got 60 days. I'm doing something. But after a while, I can't let that own me. I start to wear that on my sleeve. And all I'm doing is hanging in to get one more day. And I'm thinking about my anniversary. My anniversary is in June, August. I'm thinking about next June and what I'm going to say. <laughs> 
and who's going to really make a great presentation and have everyone crying when they give me that coin for two minutes of glory. It's all pride and ego. What am I doing in the process? That day will come. But what's going on in the middle? Because, you know, I'm here, we are here for a really short time. Young is in this room, like when I was young, I didn't even get that statement. You know, you're 25, 26 and say, we're here for a short time. I have a whole life ahead of me. Trust me, you'll be my age, 63, and saying, oh, my God, that went fast. We're here for a vapor, a breath, and we're out. And I hope when I take my last breath that I die with alcoholism and not from alcoholism. So it's really important to be immersed with this power called God. And our soul, I've learned this and again experienced it, that the soul itself is perfect. It's divine. There's nothing wrong with the soul. It's God. But what happens to a guy like me, I start to get immersed in worldly things, attitudes, emotions, ideas. I watch 10 minutes of television and I need a pill and I need a new car. I need good jewelry. I need a great body. I need good clothes. 10 minutes of TV, I'm ruined. I'm a failure. I was telling some folks this week, at Christmas time, um, there's, a, uh, there's a, a car commercial and they seem to run it almost every year. And so this perfect family in the perfect house with the perfect snow that never gets the cars in those. You ever notice the cars in the snow in the, never gets snow on them? <laughs> now, if anyone's from the Northeast, you know snow. The car looks like hell. You got the snow caked up underneath the bump. These cars are pristine. They don't get snow on them. And they're driving through mountains, but no snow goes on the car. So this family comes out at Christmas time, perfect husband and wife. Now they have African-American couples to make sure they get everybody. <laughs> they want everybody's money, yeah? And so they come out, and they got the perfect little kids. Now, I don't know about you, but Christmas morning, when I wake up, uh, my hair doesn't look like this. <laughs> Usually got sweats on and a T-shirt. They're all dressed like they just came from a spa. And he comes out, and the idea of the commercial is he buys himself, it's, Christmas, a red Lexus SUV, and he buys his wife a red Lexus SUV. Now, I'm not sure, but I'm going to take a shot here. That's about 100 grand in cars right there. He could do it. I'm sitting there going, I can't pay my rent, and it's Christmas. I don't know what I'm going to buy for my family because I don't have any money. Or maybe, God forbid, we're out of work. Or maybe we're working in Lexus. I can't afford a Lexus. I, I would love to buy my wife. I can't do it. And I'm watching this commercial, so what do I do? Something so I can live that dream because I've been programmed that that makes me okay. Need to be thin. I need to be muscular, full head of hair. I need to be bright, a moneymaker. I need to do all these things. And I'm bombarded with this. And I set my stands according to that rather than what God has. And I'm no longer listening to God. In fact, when God's speaking to me, because he always is, I don't even hear him. I don't even recognize the voice. I'm not looking for it. My prayer is, Father, let me follow your will today, whatever that is. Let me hear your will today. Please free me of these defects. I'm thinking how I can make more money, work out more in the gym. You see these young kids coming in. No offense to anyone. I see a lot of guys blown up. Don't drink and go to CrossFit. They look fabulous right before they pick up. They look great right before they pick up. And then I got to take them to a detox. They don't look so good at that point. Vanity is one of those things. Greed is another one. Pride. 
this, I need to be here, but all the stuff you're asking me to do is a little below me. I don't have time to pray to God all day. I need to be a success. And at the end of the day, the real success, and this was a hard lesson learned for me, is what's going on in my soul. Pride. How do I fix pride? Go to God for some humility, because I can't make that happen. Anger, love, and forgiveness. God will make that happen. Greed, be charitable. Homeless, there's always people on 95, get off an exit at Broward, get off an exit at Sunrise, there's people standing there. Broward and Federal Highway, they're standing there. I was going home from the, 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 the convention, there was a guy panhandling there. I had a $5 bill, gave him a $5 bill here, gave him a $5 bill there. $5 is not going to break my back, thank you, God. Might make his day, and if he's going to get drunk with none of my business, but he's one of God's kids. I'm supposed to be on a spiritual path, I'm going to judge God's kids. Well, they're different. I'm going to hold it against them with my self-righteous attitude and anger. How dare I? So they smell a little funny. I wasn't too pleasant when I walked in here either. And most of them like that. I'm sure they didn't ask to be that way. And for us in here, alcoholics and nice, I didn't ask them. When I popped out of mommy, says, can I be an alcoholic and a dolphin? Where do I sign up? But I was right in the middle of it. I couldn't get out. Envy. Be happy for people. Admire people, even if it's false. I'm happy for you. It'll kill envy. Lust, chastity. In our big book, it says we ask God to mold our sex goals and ideals because I make a mess of it. I need more of everything. My sex conduct is deplorable. That's why when we do, when I do a fifth step, the first time in, that's the part of the inventory I didn't want to talk about. Because the conduct was, was a drunken sailor just running through town. There was no integrity. There was no fidelity. There was nothing. So they're asking us to practice that. Slothfulness. Have a work ethic. And ask God for that. Did I miss one? Envy, sloth, anger. I think I, a lust. Uh, I said that. I think I covered all of them. There's, there's antidotes for all of them. But the hook is I can't make that happen. You know, I can't make it happen. What I need to do is go to God. And the first thing I need to be convinced is I have defects and I can't work on them. That was a bitter pill to swallow, that I have defects. That's the first aha moment. Not like I go to AA, make 90, 90, go through the steps and I'm defect free. In fact, if you can't get in touch with your defects, stick around. They will get in touch with you. And it usually happens during those dry times when we're not working out in the spiritual gym and not praying and meditating. We back off. All of a sudden they come up and they start showing up. And they have a lot of friends. Defects have friends, and they invite them in. And suddenly I'm under it, and I feel like I can't get out. And all I do is walk with silent scorn all day long. And a drink is what I need right now. That's what I need to fix all this is a drink. And it will fix it temporarily. The problem is I can't get out. Defects of character, I've been in the middle of them. I find myself starting to point fingers. When I'm pointing fingers, it usually means I should be pointing it back to me because the unmanageability, my book said earlier, in in inventory is always an internal condition. It's never an external condition. Perceptions of a situation are what usually causing me pain and suffering, rarely the reality of it. Perceptions, which means I'm listening to the head again. It's determining everything I do and say. 
This is a terrible place to be. When back in step three, I says, God, please relieve me of the bondage of self. Unhook me from this self guy. Unhook me from this stuff because it's wrapped around my neck and no matter where I go, there it is. I'm so afraid. I should say, I was, I used to be so afraid of what was going to happen to me that I would hold on to what I've been doing. I know this life, like going into treatment. I remember in my seven treatment center, I'm in a place in Amityville, Long Island for about, I'll say 10 days, uh, 10 days, two weeks. And he says, we need to move you out of the Northeast, people, place, and things. We need to move you out of here. He's move. Now I'm dying of alcoholism. I Big 10 days. I think I'm like Hercules at this point. Move, change, put a wrinkle in my life. Yeah, we're going to ship you to Minnesota for more treatment. And I do that six more weeks. Not done. We're going to put you in something called a halfway house for three more months. This is too much change. And I did it. And then another three months and another three months. Because deep down in my soul, My head told me something completely different. Deep down in my soul, I knew they were right. And deep down in my soul, I know if I listen to me, what's going to happen to me. And I can't stop it. There's a force feeding of humility. I had about um, knocking on six months uh, clean and sober. And I'm living at this halfway house. And I'm starting to feel physically okay again. And after that much time, I was wearing my brother's clothes for the longest time. My dad sent me some money because it was getting really cold in Minnesota. I didn't have clothes for, for the winters out there. And he sent me uh, some money. And the counselors, you know, uh, took someone, uh, took me to a bank with someone. They cashed it and put it in the safe. And I got a little allowance. And I had to go buy some clothes. So what do you do? I'm, fr- I'm originally from Brooklyn, New York. So how did we dress? Everybody dressed in black. Black shoes, black pants, black jacket, black shirt. And you thought you were, like, really cool looking. So what I do, I buy black clothes. I'm in a country town, one horse town in Hastings, Minnesota. They never saw this look before. (laughs) And I'm walking around with that Brooklyn swag. I think I got it going on. I'm almost six months. And I walk into the halfway house, and this woman, Sharon S., who was my counselor, Sharon was about five foot five by five foot five. I would never (laughs) want to fight her. She would mother you and hug you, and get your head up again and feel good, and she would level you in a minute. And this day she was leveling me, and I walked in, I said, good morning, Bob wants to see you. And Bob, uh, uh, this guy Bob, ran the sober house. Now Bob was about six foot 25, and his hands were about big as this podium. He was a country boy. He was a farm boy for a minute. He had about 18 years sober, and he ran the place. Now when you got called into his office, it was not going to be a good day. And I walk in there, and he was on the phone. He says, wait outside. And I walk in, and I sit down. He says, I didn't ask you to sit. So I'm plotting his death at this point. (laughs) And he looks at me, and he says, who, and I'll clean up the language, who do you think you are? What is going on with you? And he went into me, up one side and down the other, and the language was, was rough. I mean, he let me have it. Now get out of here, he said. And I walked out grinding my teeth and plotting things to hurt him. And all, the, all that Brooklyn stuff I grew up with, no man talks to me. This, I, it was back. And I got to the parking lot. 
maybe a half a block away from his office. And then that quiet voice said, he's right. He's right. You're doing it again. How dare you? And I went back to my bunk. I took off those clothes and I put on the clothes my brother gave me, which were too small that I didn't fit into them and some old sneakers. And I walked around like that because that's where I needed to be. There was something deep down inside, that soul that we all have, which is always right. I just got to listen to it and pay attention to it. Because that thing, that thing, that self, that, that alcoholic me was making its way back, and I thought I was okay, and they had the problem. Defects of character. A character with defects. It's defected. It's broken. It doesn't work. And they all reside up here. So for me... Um, when I look at this, and I'm willing, once again, in step six, is indispensable to have God, I'm willing, once again, to surrender my entire life, body, mind, and spirit to God. One of the prayers I work with in the morning is, is, is Father, I will go where you want me to go. I will do what you want me to do, and I will say what you want me to say. Please take me like the wretched sinner I am, and forgive me for all the wrongs I've committed. I need to be clear with him. Now, he knows that. I just need to say that to get me centered. I'm broken and flawed. Um, Without sounding religious or biblical, I have to look at myself as a sinner. That's what I do, left up to my own nature, my own devices. This mind does not work. It's always not working. But God can redeem that. That's why we have a six and seven. That's why we have a four, five, six, seven, eight, nine to bring death to the, to the self and life to the spirit. Take me like the wretch I am. If I think I'm greater than that, I'm going to have a problem with this work. I'm going to have a problem with God. I'm going to have a problem. There's something that says the more lowly I am, and they don't mean like low, like like servile or scraping or some sort of dirtbag, but it's, it's, it's a picture. The more lower or humble I become, the greater God is. But if I'm, a, if I'm elevating myself, then there's no room for God. If I exalt myself, I'm going to be humbled. But if I get humbled, he will exalt me. Yeah? So I look at six and step, step seven says this, really cool words. It just opens up with when ready. We say something like this, which is our seven-step prayer. And the question that's asked here, as my, per my sponsor, is when is ready? It says when ready, we say something like this, and I roll right through step seven. But pause there. When is ready? And I says to my sponsor, I don't know. I think I'm ready. I don't know. He says, well, when is ready? I said, I don't know. I think I'm ready. And he kept pushing me. He says, you know, when you're ready, when you are willing in here to let go of your life once again and let God take you wherever he's going to take you, send you where he's going to send you, have you do what he wants you to do with your life. That's when you're ready. Are you willing to do that? So a lot of times we do a four, five, six, and seven writing to amends. I'm not ready. You know, it's interesting. Back in step three, Bill writes, we thought well before taking this step, referring to step three. Send us home. And so I want you to think about this third step before you launch in here. Are you really willing to have your life turned inside out and it's no longer on your terms? And Bill's saying the same thing here. Are you, am I ready? Peter, are you ready? 
because God really thinks I mean it. And it's going to take on a new meaning and a new wrinkle and a new twist. And I think I'm supposed to be working here. He's going to put me there. I think I'm supposed to be living there. He's going to make me live there. I think I'm supposed to be relationship. He says, no relationships. I, I'm in a relationship. There's no more relationships. I want to get out of a relationship. No, you're going to stay in that relationship. It's not my terms. And rubber hits the road and change begins to happen for a drunk like me while I'm willing to sign up to that and follow his will and ask him, can I do that today for you? And he knows I'm going to screw it up and it gets messy, but I'm willing to chop wood and carry water. When ready, I say something like this. My creator sounds just like the third step prayer. I am now willing, you should have all of me. So am I willing to give all of me to God? Not the part like, God, take um, my anger, take my jealousy, take my envy, take my slothfulness, but money and sex, I got I, I, I'm in charge of that one. And my and willingness is key. Am I willing to let go? This doesn't say you, everything's going to be taken from you, but am I willing to let it go? Am I willing to? As soon as I claim, by the way, I've learned this the hard way too. As soon as I put my before anything, I'm in trouble. See, if I went into, if we went to the Floridian after this, and we're about to leave, and I found a big book on, the, on one of the tables, I would go to the, the waitress and say, somebody left this big book. See, they get it. And I'd go home. Because it's not my book. But if I walked out of the restaurant, I got in the car at Marion, I said, left my book in the restaurant, I'll be right back. Have you saw my book? I need my book. It's my book. Make sure nobody takes my book. It's mine. It's, I own it. My relationship, my money, my car, my whatever. I take ownership, which now I'm in fear of losing it. So something that I love and cherish, I drive away because I'm kind of trying to control it, because it's mine. I need to control that person. I need to control my money. I need to control everything. It's a scary way to live. Everything's on loan. Sometimes for a lifetime, but it is on loan. I live in a world of impermanence. I don't know where you're at, but a world of impermanence. At some point, something's going to end. My grandparents were married for like 8 billion years. I mean, they were just one of the, you know, all from the other side. They were just married forever. My grandfather passed at, I think it was 98. My grandmother passed around 96. They got married when they were like 20. It was like one of those things. But once my grandfather passed, in my grandmother's heart, she was still married. But technically, they were, she was single. That relationship ended. Nothing lasts forever, including money, property, and prestige. Because the way the Lord giveth, he take two. (laughs) (laughs) My creator, I'm now willing shed of all of me, good and bad. So I don't even know what's good for me and what's bad for me. My spouse tell me, rest his soul, what I think is good for me might be bad, and what I think is bad for me just might be good. I don't know. There's a force feeding of humility there. An ego gets in where I think I operate really good, by the way. That's where it gets in. I'm really good at this. That's where ego gets in. I pray that you now remove from me every single defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. This isn't about making me some star in AA. It's about going 
for God and being useful to others to fit myself to be a maximum service to God and those about me. Grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding. Amen. 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. Now there's an amen. Step three had no amen because I went in. i am completed this body of work for now. And there's an amen. I'm going to go out there and repair stuff. This is where God's going to take me to places I can never volunteer to go to. This is where God brings debt to every identity that does not come from, from, from him. I walk in with all these ideas, plans, and visions of what I'm supposed to be like, and God slams them all down. That's not what I have for you. And if you continue on that path, you're going to get further and further away from me. And God doesn't know that guy. To have my own dream and live it, and it's against God's will, God doesn't know that person. And to be unknown by God is to have way too much privacy. And that's right from Thomas Merton. God is always beyond my cleverest plans. But if I'm full of pride and ego, I don't even want to admit to that. I'm hell-bent on doing something while I'm supposed to be walking a spiritual path. So we, we often talk, it's almost cliche, how step seven is humility. But I hope I'm making that point in my own experience. Of myself, I am nothing the Father do with the works. In the 12 and 12, Bill talks about being the hole in the donut. What's going to happen to me? What am I going to become? If God really gets down and dirty and starts pulling the stuff away and tweaking stuff and shaving stuff off, what's going to happen to me? None of my business is what I've learned. All I know, it's going to be better than the product I've been walking around with. I become more of a real person, more useful. Relationships are subtly important to me, start with God. I want to show up for a relationship. I want to present well to a relationship. I care about what you're at, and I don't like what you're doing. And I can tell you that. I can, health, I can make a healthy detachment from people who don't have my best interest in mind. Toxic folks. I don't have to hang in there because I feel guilty. That's totally self. You're, you're, you're not good for me. You're hurting me. So I'm going to back away from you rather than people, please, to get you to like me. That's very sick behavior. That's untreated alcoholism behavior. And that's no honoring of the soul or me or you for that matter. Yeah, I don't mean you. I don't even know who you are. I said that. He's whispering to his friend. They're going to blow my car up. Um, I love you. <laughs> So um, with six and now we have different influences in, in, in sponsorship. I can only share what, what my experience is. doesn't mean it's right. Uh, my sponsor often says we're not uh, uh, spokesmen or examples of AA. We're just here to share our story. But our, our quiet time after five and six and seven was always done alone. Some people like to do it with their sponsees, and that's cool. We did it alone. And um, what my sponsor would have me do is after that hour, stay with six and seven. And when I was, uh, we was to work on the seven-step prayer for like a few days. Just sit with that if anything comes up that maybe I'm unaware of. One of the prayers we worked was, Father, please show me what I'm unaware of before they get to me and kill me. Show me what I can't see. And I put that out there. 
It kind of gets me a little bit more focused so this doesn't become like very cavalier. This is key work here. This is huge work. I know it's only two paragraphs big book. Bill does a beautiful job in the 12 and 12 with this. There's a lot, there's heavy lifting here to really be flushed out to walk and travel lighter. So what, that's what we would do. My very first sponsor, I practiced this for a while. It was a pretty cool assignment. What he would have us do, and it was just for a visual. It didn't mean we we're going to go to God and petition, this is what I need. But we would look at our defects, the things we were aware of. And we would write down what the opposite would look like. Dishonesty, honesty. Jealousy, trust. Anger, love, forgiveness. And so uh, kind of like the antidotes of, uh, antidotes of the, the seven deadly sins. And what we did, we, I, I was able to get a, a visual. What that looked like going out. And I would pray over those things. But my prayers were, okay, God, here's the defects. Now give me this. That's not how that works. It was just a simple offering. Now, over the years, you know, things change and we evolve and we wake up and there's new wrinkles. I don't do that anymore. For me, I'm just convinced God knows what's, what's, what's going on in the head and how it's tainting the soul. So for me, the word surrender has been a huge word, surrendering everything to God. I mean everything. A daily dying for successful living, a daily surrender to everything. Joe doesn't like me, surrender that. Mary's leaving me, surrender. I don't mean apathetic and bury our head in the sand, but just surrender it. Because we live life forward and understand backwards, and I look a lot of things that I really wanted and never got them, and after the fact, I'm really glad I never got them. So it's a daily surrender. And that, just that, for me, that daily surrender is a, you know, humility doesn't taste good when it's going down. It's yuck. I don't like this. But when you get to that place of feeling weak and vulnerable, if you will, that doesn't taste good. But I need God. I need people close to me right now. It tends to breed most intimacy with this God. And in that place, those defects are are arrested. And sometimes I need a circumstance like that. I don't think I need that anymore. I remember I just moved to Jersey. And what I would do is every year I would go for a physical. And I do the whole physical thing, and they do the blood work and all this other jazz. And uh, I go back to the doctor after physical, and he's going over my blood work. I'll never forget this. I'm sitting in his office, and he had a concern about the blood work. It was the first time a doctor was concerned about my blood work. And it wasn't like cholesterol's high or sugar's high. He had a concern And all of a sudden, my heart, I feel a pounding in my chest. And I'm getting really uncomfortable. What do you mean? He said, well, I got some concerns about this and that and the other thing. I said, Doc, what are you telling me? What are we looking at here? And I don't want to hear it because I know the word's coming out. That word that we'd never want to hear from the doctor. He said, well, it could be that. In an instant. Now, at the time, my sponsor, Mark, when he was alive, I was getting ready to move to Texas and work with him in this high-powered position, this huge facility, 70-something acres. He was going to give me a really good job. And we were talking about bonus structure and all this stuff. I got all this stuff running through my head. I got to pack. I got to move to Texas. Got to find a home. All the life stuff. When he mentioned that word, 
I didn't care. I remember thinking, I got to get to my, I didn't know Marion at the time. I got to get around my brothers. I got to get around my dad. And I need to call my sponsor. And I don't care what I'm wearing. I don't care what I drive. I don't care what the ATM says, how much money I have in my checking account. I don't care about the weather. I don't care. It's not important. I want to live. And I remember, Father, please just get me to this, whatever it is, but please don't give me this. Nothing was important, including how my hair was that day. That was a real miracle. I didn't care. And when I got home, I remember I was vibrating, and they were going to send me for follow-up tests. And I think this thing where they rubbed this thing over you, like a sonogram kind of thing to see. My sponsor, I called him, and we prayed. He called me, except for one day, he called me every single day day until I went for these follow-up tests and thank you God it was I'll just call it a false positive it was there was nothing I had hep C at the time I didn't get the treatment for hep C and he didn't know that and it kind of like offset some stuff it was just one big cluster thank the good Lord he said you're fine go home have fun and I can breathe again. And I says, let's talk about that bonus structure now we worried about, you know. And I need new clothes, and I need a haircut, and I, and I don't like where I, it, it came right back. But sometimes in those places, and no one wants to go there, and we don't, I don't have to walk into that kind of tense moment to experience God. But it's really interesting when that happens, what's really important I'm not interested in worldly things at that point. I just want to get as close to God as I can. And if he's going to take me, then take me. And I just want to be around my family, tell them how much I love them. The man of greed, or the woman of greed, the person of greed. um, The man of greed wants everything. And whether he or she achieves it or not, always goes home empty. The humble man or woman seeks nothing, is satisfied with what's given to them, and always goes home full and content. The first one is not a spiritual walk. The second one is. So I can spend my time waiting for you to change, waiting for them to change, And work on my defects. I'm going to work on my defects. I'm working on my defects. And all I do is chase my tail. Or perhaps I can get on bended knees. Regardless of my faith, it's just a sign of humility. Get on bended knees and and beg for mercy. I need help here. I'm stuck. I don't know how to get past. My head's telling me how to get past. I don't really know. Because when I figure things out, I always have a bottle of whiskey in my hand. That's what I do. I'm an alcoholic. So how free do I want to be? And so for me, it's ongoing. And when I do my nightlies, when I do my inventory, and I write out or answer the questions, however you do it, 11 has questions, 10 is a walking around. We have some questions to answer there. I don't really care how you do it. As long as we're doing it, we're taking stock during the day, is when I see that inventory, I can see a defect popped in. I fell asleep spiritually for a while, I fell asleep. Spiritually, I fell asleep. And that opens the door to pride comes in. I, I've been running my own company for about five years now. 
making most of the decisions. And in order to save my company and help more people, I merge with another company. But I'm not the guy of a beautiful position, almost autonomous. Is mutual respect here. Otherwise, I wouldn't have done it. But I'm not the guy. I'm not the CEO. And I was really okay with that. And a couple of times when I went into the office, I still my office, I went into the other office, and I'm sitting on the other side of the desk. Pride says, what kind of nonsense is this? Don't they know who you are? And I call my sponsor. I'll clean up the language. He says, your, your journey in business is not to be that guy because God can't use you there. God uses you there. And once again, I got clear. I'm, and I spoke to Michael about this too. It was really funny. I've said this a few times. My sponsor's in Minnesota. I did a fifth step with him. I sat with Michael, and a lot of their feedback was identical, different words. So two people are saying, I've got to pay attention. And Michael told us the same thing. You're not, you're not that guy. You did that. But God has another role for you to play. You can't be doing that. There was a force feeding you humility. And once I, Thomas Merton talks about this. Once I get what God's calling is for me, once I get my vocation, when I, this is where God wants me. I'm going to be a painter. I'm going to be a house builder. I'm going to be a school teacher. Whatever it is, once we get that and accept it, suddenly I'm able to work that into work rather than I'm doing something I'm not supposed to be doing and trying to squeeze it into my spiritual life. Once I get my vocation, once I get my calling, it suddenly seems that everything else around me is okay, regardless of what others are saying or doing in AA, outside of AA. This is my calling. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. I have a dear friend of mine. He's down in Miami right now. I remember he used to talk, have these intimate conversations, and he would say, something's telling me to do something. And he's he's in seminary school. Young fella. That means he's giving up a lot. He said, I'm not giving up anything. I'm getting a whole bunch. That's how I knew he was being called. Giving up women, giving up money, giving up. He's, no, I'm being called. I'm getting. I don't look at it that way. And he honored that. And we all have one. But the mind has me going another direction, which means I'm never going to be free. I can make $100 million. It's really cool to have that kind of money, but I'm not free. And you walk into Publix and you see a guy, uh, we had a friend, Henry, who was a butcher in, 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 in Publix. He was the happiest guy in the world. He didn't have a whole lot of money. He was the happiest guy. He loved what he was doing. He loved meeting people. He loved being a member of AA. I know some folks in my industry who were multimillionaires who run big, big treatment centers, and they're miserable, and they're getting high and winding up in detox, and no one knows about it. I'd rather be like Henry. Henry was so connected to God that when he got cancer and he was ready to die, he said, I'm ready to go home. I'm tired. I want to meet my God. Closed his eyes and went to sleep. Don Pritz was the same way. Now, I don't, I don't, I'm not ready for that day just yet. I want to hang around a little while. <laughs> hang around. We haven't gone to Hawaii yet, so we've got to... You listening? Um, but the freedom in that, yeah, the freedom in that, to travel that light... How free do I want to be? Mark used to ask us that all the time. How free do you want to be? If I'm free now, do I want to get freer? 
If I have some God, I want to get more God. Because I know when I was drunk, I used to like to get drunker. When I was getting high, I used to get higher. And so I come into recovery and I got limits on how, oh, enough God, I'm driving tonight. You know, put a lid on it. But this is a, 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 a walk. Um, experientially, I can tell you, um, defects have eaten my lunch more times than I care to admit. But God has taken me into his arms a whole bunch more times. And because of those kind of spiritual muscles, when those things show up, I get back in the saddle a lot quicker. They don't take me around the block like they used to. Because Alcoholics Anonymous and this God we pray to, whatever your God is, is always talking to us. We hear it at meetings and God's always, always pursuing us. We hear it at meetings. And begging to have a relationship. You know, we don't leave till the miracle happens. Keep coming back. We're, we're pursuing. We're begging to have a relationship with you. And so is God. And just sometimes we get to a place where we look back at all the events. We live life photo and stand in the back and say, oh, my God, it was God here. It was God there. It was God here. It was God there. And I wasn't paying attention. He still saved the wretch like me and placed me in a meeting and put me in a place like Alcoholics in God on a Thursday night. This is the coolest place for me to be all week. We, we love Thursday nights. So thank, that's all I got. Yes. <laughs> Let's give him one more hand, you guys. Thank God. My favorite. And a few more other people. I know. It's about God. Yay. Sorry, but not sorry. Okay. Where am I in this? I kind of got sober during that talk tonight. So that was good. Emotionally sober. That was good. I'm not supposed to do that. I'm supposed to stick to the script. And I'm supposed to call up the secretary report, I think. Right? Hello, everyone. I am uh, your recovered alcoholic secretary. My name's Joey. Hello. All right. In keeping... Um, with the seventh tradition, which states that every group shall be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions, we have some folks passing the baskets around. And at this time, I've asked James, a sacred member of this fellowship, to come read the recovered statement. Um, we read this to explain my men why many people in this group may identify as recovered rather than recovering. And what exactly means to be a recovered alcoholic, no one better to do this than James. Thank you. Thank you, Joey. Um, James, a recovered alcoholic. Recovered, we are not cured of alcoholism. Recovered, but not cured. That presents a conflict to some alcoholics. If we were cured, we would be able to drink responsibly. No, we are not cured. The, the allergic reaction to alcohol will remain with us for our lifetime but we have been restored to sanity. That was the problem. The main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than his body. We are now sane where alcohol is concerned. Consequently, we have recovered.
Thank you, James. That was beautiful. Um, 1940 style big book sponsorship from the forward of the second edition, Alcoholics Anonymous. Of alcoholics who came to AA and really tried, 50% got sober at once and remained that way. 25% sobered up after some relapses. And among the remainder, those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. What we've seen, felt, come to believe, and experience is that God has not changed over time, and neither should the sacred approach back to his loving arms. The statistics above suggest a 75-plus percent success rate. Awesome. Um, at this time, is there anyone here that would need a sponsor? It's okay if you're shy. All right. That's all right. Um, uh, is there any recovered alcoholics out there? Raise your hand. If anyone was too shy, please see one of the people's hands are raised. We'd be happy to help bring you to God. Um, awesome. All right. So, um, sorry, announcements. That's what we're doing. <clears throat> Intergroup. Beautiful place. You can buy a literature, medallions, um, is also responsible for the where and when and scheduling the AA hotline. Stop by and pay them a visit. Um, BCIC is responsible for bringing in, excuse me, bringing meetings into places where people like us can't get out, such as jails, detoxes, rehabs. They meet monthly to organize these meetings at the 12-step house. Is there any BCIC members here? That's okay. Um, Pop over to the 12-step house and check it out. Um, let's see. So we do have some announcements that are over here. Um, so check those out after the meeting. Peter is gracing us with his presence for a couple more weeks, which we're very grateful for. Um, and uh, the big book study, which is actually in this room on Monday evenings. This meeting starts at 7.15. Show up at 6.30. Cookies will be provided, thanks to as long as Alan is here. God bless him. Um, but no, it's a it's a great time. We go through page by page, really get you know that's where I got a lot of my knowledge and which I'm very grateful for um, as far as the book goes. So uh, stop on by. All right. All right. Next to the announcement flyers, we do have CDs, mugs, large print big books, little red books, and big book dictionaries for sale. Please see one of the home group members after if you, if you would like to procure any. We do meet every Thursday starting promptly at 715. Fellowship starting at 630. Feel free to show up early. We ask you to be courteous and ready to begin at the sound of the bells. Thank you all. See you next week. We have tonight's sessions and all thank you. And all the past speakers podcasts at alcoholicsandgod.org. Invite everyone to our Monday night big book study. I just did. Yes. Invite those whom wish to thank tonight's speaker to line up down the center aisle. And let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, 
as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.
Chase, here's that song you've been asking me for for a million years. I finally pulled it out the pulled it out the corners of my mind, and um, here you go. Thank you. 
Kristen turn each way Flowers blooming all the time right outside my door Never before I had to change everything To realize That today is the best day of my God bless. I love you, Mike Chase. Bye. I think you know this one, don't you?
Take me, take me. Got one man that just won't say. 